Great. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Good evening to you all. It's great to uh, see you all here. Uh, Let me add my own welcome to that of um, Simon Jennifer's earlier in the service. My name is Will Warren. I'm currently the minister at Trinity uh, during the vacancy. It's great to uh, have you with us. May I pray for us as we look at those verses. Uh, Later on in uh, the letter of 2 Timothy, Paul tells us that the scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And Lord, that is our prayer this evening. We pray that as we look at your word, uh, say you would help us to be wise for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would help me to handle your words properly and that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, forgive me if this seems a rather morbid way of beginning a talk, but I wonder if you have written your will yet. Have you written your will? Uh, if you haven't managed to get around to it, then uh, fear not, you're not alone, because apparently only, uh, one, only three out of every ten people in the UK has managed it. Uh, I was quite surprised at that statistic, but there you have it. Uh, wills are rather important for a number of reasons. Uh, they are, of course, supremely important because uh, they decide largely what happens to a person's estate after they have passed on. They're important. They matter. They're legal. But apart from that, they're also important because they provide a fascinating insight into somebody's character and into somebody's uh, priorities. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, so, for example, the, uh, the will of the uh, atheistic humanist, uh, George Bernard Shaw, uh, specified that there should be no Christian symbolism at all in his funeral or at his graveside. I think that part of it's been honoured. Uh, The second part of it was that he set aside a a vast sum of money uh, in order for a special alphabet that he'd spent his life developing to be promoted. And the fact that we are here and not using it is probably a sign that that hasn't been (laughs) quite successful. (laughs) I'll take another example. Um, There was an American millionaire called uh, John uh, Bowman. Uh, John Bowman was convinced that he would be reincarnated. And he was so convinced of the doctrine of reincarnation Uh, that he gave uh, money and he specified in his will that his servants should lay out a table and prepare uh, dinner for him uh, every single evening. I think they managed it for about 40 years until the money ran out, uh, so I'm told. Uh, Why are we talking about wills? Well, the reason is because uh, 2 Timothy that we have before us is effectively the last will and testament of the Apostle Paul. Uh, It's the last letter that St. Paul wrote to us. Uh, He is in prison in Rome, and he knows that the end of his life and the end of his ministry is fast approaching. And as his ministry and his life draws to a close, he's setting down on paper his priorities. He's writing a letter to his young protege, Timothy, uh, a pastor uh, in a church in Ephesus, And he's laying out his priorities for gospel-centered ministry, for how churches uh, should conduct themselves, for what leaders in the church should look like and what they should focus on uh, when he's gone. Uh, And over the next four weeks, we're going to spend some time uh, in 2 Timothy. It's only a a whistle-stop tour, really. We're we're not going to do it in great depth. But I want us to start exploring some of those priorities that uh, St. Paul uh, lays out and to start thinking about how they should be shaping our approach as a church. 
and particularly perhaps to help us think about what we should be looking for as we look towards the future and we're going to be looking for a new senior minister over the next few months. What qualities should we be looking for? I think 2 Timothy has several things to say. Uh, Well, this evening, uh, I could effectively summarise what I'm going to say by referencing uh, verse 14, and it's this. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. I think that, says Paul, is the first priority of any Christian minister. Guard the gospel that has been entrusted to us. And I want to unpack the rest of the chapter uh, by way of using three questions, uh, three questions for us. Uh, The first question I want to ask of this passage is, what is it that we are actually guarding? What is it that we are actually guarding? And I think Paul gives us the answer in the first couple of verses. He says that we are guarding the promise of life, the promise of life. I don't know if you're like me, but whenever you turn to one of Paul's letters, it's very tempting to skip over the introduction and sort of plunge into the real meat, as it were. It's very tempting to do that, but I want us to pause and consider the first couple of verses of 2 Timothy, because they are absolutely chock full of uh, some clues and some statements that are going to be very, very significant for us as we go through the rest of it. Uh, We are, we're told, reading a letter written by Paul. He says he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, verse 1. Essentially, here we have the Apostle Paul's credentials, his qualifications, if you like. Uh, He tells us he's an apostle. That is, he is somebody who has seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he saw the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. Uh, And he is somebody who has been commissioned by God to be his chosen instrument to take the gospel to the nations. He is an apostle. You might think, well, so what? (laughs) What does it matter? Why does he need to tell Timothy that? And Timothy already knows that, of course. He knew Paul very well. Well, the reason Paul is saying this, uh, we can see this if we glance ahead in the letter and we understand a bit of the background to to Timothy. Uh, We don't know the full details, but it's pretty clear as you read through 2 Timothy that one of the big problems that Timothy is facing in the church in Ephesus is false teaching. There are individuals who Paul says are opposing the truth of the gospel. And I think Paul is being very specific here. He is, I guess he's setting himself up in contrast against these false teachers. He is saying that in contrast to these men, he can be trusted. What he says is true. He's been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his his authority for saying what he says. He carries the authority of God himself. And I think it's also the reason why he is very careful to remind Timothy of the heart of the gospel that he is guarding. And you can see it again in verse 1. He says he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. The heart of the good news of Christianity, friends, is life. Life in all its fullness, as the Lord Jesus put it. And that is the story of the Bible from start to finish. It is the promise of life in the Lord Jesus. The Bible tells us that by rights, each of us deserve death, not life. 
Uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden turned away from God. They rejected God, and so God's just punishment for them was for them to forfeit life and to experience death. And that has been what humankind has experienced uh, ever since that day. And yet, even though that's what we deserve by, by right, the good news of the Bible, the promise of life that the Bible explains for us, is that in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, by his rising again to new life, we can share in the life that we were intended for, uh, all, uh, all along with. We can enjoy life as it was meant to be. We had that wonderful uh, sort of, uh, I guess, summary of the good news of Jesus, didn't we? In the middle of uh, chapter 1, Paul says, verse 10, that the Lord Jesus has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The message that uh, Timothy and we are called to guard is a message of life. I think it's pretty clear if we read on through to Timothy that this is really at the heart of the problem in Ephesus. This is the, the message that is being distorted by the false teachers. Uh, if you flick over into chapter 2, you can see Paul tells us in uh, v- uh, verse 18 of chapter 2 that there are two particular individuals who have wandered away from the truth. And the way they've wandered away from it is that they have said that the resurrection has already taken place. Now, we don't really know exactly what that means. But clearly, in some way, they were distorting the good news of the gospel. Uh, They were saying, in some way, that the good news was not a message of life. And Paul is very clear to get that straight from the very start. The message at the heart of Christianity is a promise of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I think we live in a world where lots of people are pretty confused about what Christianity is about uh, and what it might mean. I came across quite recently this, um, this, this is some answers that a hospital chaplain was given um, when he off, went round uh, the wards offering uh, communion to people. Uh, the first one was, uh, no thanks, I'm Church of England. Uh, the second uh, was, no thanks, I asked for cornflakes. Uh, and the third one, this is probably even more puzzling, is, uh, no thanks, I'm not circumcised. Uh, a whole mass of problems with <laughs> those answers. Uh, many people today have little, if any, idea of what Christianity is all about. Uh, sometimes I wonder if any Christians do. Certainly if you listen to Thought for the Day on Radio 4, you might uh, come away with that impression, at least. If they have any idea at all about Christianity, or any kind of conception of what it means, they think that either it's a set of rules that has to be followed and obeyed, otherwise God is going to hurt you, or it's some kind of myths and fairy tales. It's a bit like Winnie the Pooh or the Tooth Fairy, and the sooner you grow up and get out of it, uh, the better. But the heart of Christianity is something very, very different to either of those things. Paul tells us, it is the answer to the greatest need of the human heart. It's the greatest need that any one of us sitting here uh, this evening could possibly have. It's our need of life, and it's found in the Lord Jesus Christ, the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. That's the message Paul says we're offering to the world, but it's the message that we're also called to guard. So what are we guarding? The promise of life. Second question I want to ask of this chapter, how can we guard this message? How can we guard this message? And the answer that Paul gives us is very simple. It is by the power of God, by the power of God. 
Uh, if you're a Christian this evening, you'll know, I'm sure, the comfort that comes from knowing that other Christians are praying for you. Uh, my wife and I have been having uh, some difficulties over the last uh, couple of months with uh, family circumstances, and it's been a great comfort to know that the church family here and Christian friends uh, further afield have been praying for us. Uh, I don't find it too hard to imagine how encouraging it must have been for Timothy to read here that Paul was praying for him. Uh, even in the midst of all the trouble that Paul was undergoing, still he's praying for Timothy and giving thanks for him. In particular, he says that he's giving thanks uh, for one thing in particular. Excuse me. He's giving thanks for his sincere faith, he tells us. <clears throat> in uh, verse, uh, verse uh, 5, he says, I've been reminded of your sincere faith. Uh, which, he says, stems from the strong Christian faith, in turn, of Timothy's family. Uh, we're told, aren't we, in verse uh, 5, uh, this faith first lived in your grandmother Lois, and also in your mother Eunice. And if you read in Acts chapter 16 of Paul's visit to uh, Lystra, where Timothy was living, uh, you can hear the background. Timothy's father was a Greek, uh, but his mother and his grandmother were Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's clear that it's from them that he learnt the scriptures, and he learned the Lord Jesus, and he came to put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I guess like many people, Timothy could be very, very grateful for the solid Christian backgrounds that he enjoyed. And yet, despite that privilege, despite that impeccable Christian heritage, despite his sincere faith, Timothy is under pressure in his church in Ephesus. Uh, as far as we know, he's got false teachers to contend with. He's got frail health. We know that from 1 Timothy 6, the first letter. Uh, Paul tells him to drink some wine because he's got a dodgy stomach. He's obviously got uh, frail health. He's got a lack of experience. He's not uh, particularly uh, experienced. Uh, he's young in, uh, and uh, shouldn't necessarily be in the position that he's in. And with all those factors, I guess he was tempted to shrink back from the task uh, that he faced. He was tempted to throw in the towel, I guess. But Paul reminds him, doesn't he, that he's not, God has not given him a spirit of timidity, verse 7, but rather a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and of self-discipline. Here, I think, is the secret of a Christian worker, or any Christian for that matter, remaining faithful under pressure. It isn't about trying harder. It's not about relying on our skills. It's not about relying on our talents. It's not about relying on our grit, gritting our teeth and toughing it out. Instead, it's about relying on God and the gift of his Holy Spirit, the gift that he gives to all his children and relying on the power that the Holy Spirit uh, brings. It's the power, isn't it, to keep going when all around us are giving up on the good news of Jesus Christ and are ridiculing us and are calling us to do the same. It's the power to love those we're called to love, even when they are not very lovely and we would rather not. It's the power to remain self-controlled. When under pressure, uh, all around us, the world is telling us to, uh, to do what we want because you're worth it and to gratify our deepest, darkest desires. It's the self-control to say no to that, to ungodliness, and to follow the ways of the Lord. The answer, Paul says, to remaining strong under pressure, being able to guard the gospel, is in the power of God by his Holy Spirit. 
And again, he reminds us of that in verse 14. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. How? With the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. But that's not all he says, is it? In return, he says that Timothy is to fan into flame the gift of God that is in him. So he's to do his part as well, verse uh, 6. I guess if I was Timothy in that situation, I think probably what I'd be thinking under pressure is, well, I I need some kind of special anointing or some kind of special spiritual experience uh, in order to help me tough this out. I think I would at least be tempted to think that. I don't know whether you would or not. But it's interesting that Paul doesn't say that. He says rather that he is to kind of rekindle that which he has already received. Uh, He is to, to, to use the gifts that God has already given him and to stay close to the Lord, to keep his spiritual fire kind of stoked up, and to keep it burning. Uh, when uh, my wife and I lived in our old house, when we lived in Oxford, we had a, a wood-burning uh, wood fire. And it was great if you put it on, you'd have a nice warm house for, uh, for, for most of the evening. But it was very easy to let it go out. If you got distracted, so if somebody phoned up, and you kind of went to answer the telephone, you sort of stayed on the phone, you could very easily come back and find that the fire had, um, had gone out. And it's a bit like that spiritually, I think. Paul is saying to Timothy, you've got a fire inside you. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. But you've got to keep it stoked up. And under pressure, there's a danger that you won't. You'll get distracted and you'll let it die down. Timothy is to fan into flame the gift of God's Holy Spirit. So you can continue to guard the gospel, even when he's under pressure. It seems to me that it's very often the way of God to use people like Timothy for his service. People who feel weak, people who feel inexperienced, people who I think the world would probably reject as being a bit unimpressive, uh, people who are a bit weak or a bit too young. And yet time and time again in the Bible, that's the people, those are the people that God chooses to use. And when they're filled with his Holy Spirit, they can be mighty weapons uh, in his hands. Uh, just this last week, I was reading a biography of um, the man who helped to set up the Christian camps that uh, Claire and I have been uh, going on for a few years now, and we try and commit to doing them most summers. Uh, it's remarkable, I was reading the biography, he really was not an impressive individual by any uh, level at all. In fact, uh, one description of him was uh, nondescript, if that's a description, I think. It's not a very flashing one, is it? Uh, he wasn't particularly clever, uh, he wasn't particularly uh, athletic, he wasn't particularly adventurous, he wasn't particularly artistic. But this is what somebody said of him, and I think this is an amazing thing to say. His heart was ablaze with Jesus Christ. His heart was ablaze with Jesus Christ. I think he was somebody who fanned into flames the gift that the Lord had given him. And actually God used him in a remarkable way to lead many people to faith in Jesus Christ and actually to hand it on to the next generation. Uh, When he died, the assessment of uh, the person who wrote his obituary was that he had done more for the cause of the gospel in this land than almost anybody else in the second half of the 20th century. It's an amazing statement to make, and I think there may be reasons for saying that it was true. In the early days of his ministry, apparently he faced a lot of opposition. He had a great deal of opposition from people who didn't like what he was doing and thought that he was doing the wrong thing and should do something else. And yet, in God's strength, he stood firm. And many, many people can be thankful for that, because the work that he's started nearly 80 years ago is still flourishing today, and it's got bigger and bigger, far beyond anything that I'm sure he could have ever imagined. 
Uh, All of us, whoever we are, need the Holy Spirit inside us to be effective in the service of God's kingdom. But it's especially true if we find ourselves in Christian leadership or positions of Christian uh, responsibility. And I want to ask you to pray for those you know who occupy those positions. Of course, it's me and Mike and Amanda as the wardens, but it's lots of people in our church family, whether it's home group leaders or uh, Mike, who's coordinating our music for us this evening. There are lots of people who occupy positions of spiritual responsibility and leadership in Holy Trinity. And we should be praying for them, that they would be filled with the Spirit and be careful to fan into flames the gift uh, that God has given them. And of course, above all, we want to be praying especially, don't we, for our next rector, that he would be somebody who is spirit-filled, a person of whom it could be said, as, as it was of that man I quoted, that they would have their heart ablaze for Jesus Christ, somebody who guards the good news of Jesus in the power that God has given them. What are we guarding? Uh, how are we guarding it? Uh, the third question I want to ask of this chapter is, what does it cost to guard it? What does it cost to guard it? And I think Paul's answer is a sobering one. He says it costs perseverance. Perseverance. Uh, If we're faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it's inevitable that we will face trouble. Uh, Jesus himself promised that to his disciples just before he left them. Uh, He said, didn't he, that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, then they will also persecute you. Uh, Paul knows that only too well in his prison. That's the reason he's there in the first place. Uh, He's there, languishing in a prison, facing a death sentence for the sake of Jesus Christ. But it's also for the sake of Jesus Christ that he urges Timothy not to be ashamed. Not to be ashamed either of Paul, as he's languishing in prison, or to be ashamed of Jesus Christ, crucified on a hideous, horrible cross. Instead, Paul says, he is to persevere. He is to join with him in suffering, verse 8. Join with him in suffering for the gospel. Again, by the power of God. He is to regard the gospel, persevere, to stay loyal. It's not easy, persevering in the gospel. And Paul knows that. That's been his experience. But I think to encourage Timothy and to encourage us, he gives us uh, three examples to consider. Firstly, and most importantly, he encourages us with the example of the Lord Jesus himself. Isn't this a wonderful description of the gospel that we believe? Verse 9, he says, uh, The power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything that we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Isn't it wonderful to hear that ultimately persevering for the gospel doesn't actually depend on us? But it depends on God. Because right at the heart of the good news of Christianity is the news that God has chosen us right from the beginning of time to be his people. That's not a choice that depended on anything that we could do. We can't earn God's acceptance. It's just there. It is part of his perfect plan and his perfect love for us. And he says, doesn't he, that in the coming of the Lord Jesus to die and rise again, God's plans and purposes are coming to fruition. That's a wonderful encouragement, isn't it? Must be an encouragement to Timothy, but it's definitely encouragement to us. Why can we persevere when the world is turning against the gospel? We persevere because God ultimately is in control. 
It doesn't depend on us. It depends on him and his grand cosmic plans that are happening even now. God's purposes can never be thwarted. It doesn't matter whether we're in Rome or whether we're in Ephesus or whether we're just in Norwich. When we know that God has chosen us for salvation, when we know that his perfect plans are coming to fruition, that is an amazing encouragement to keep going. He carries on. Not just the example of Jesus Christ, but the example of himself. He says, verse 11, doesn't he? Of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and that is why I am suffering. And yet, he says, I'm not ashamed. Why am I not ashamed? Because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. Paul is suffering for the gospel just as he's been suffering for the rest of his ministry. There must have been times, almost on a daily basis, when he was wondering, why am I still doing this? Why haven't I given this up? What a waste of time. Why haven't I gone back to what I was doing before? But he hasn't given up. And he's not going to give up, even as he faces the death sentence. Why? Because he knows who he's believed. He knows that the God he's trusted has been faithful and will be faithful forever. When all else fails, he knows that he can trust in God and God will stand on his promises and he will guard what Paul has entrusted to him for all eternity. He can rely on him. He will never betray uh, his trust or our trust. And very lastly, he gives us this other example. We've probably heard of the Lord Jesus. We've probably heard of Timothy, but I bet you've rarely heard of Onesiphorus, if that's how you pronounce it. This great little example, this cameo appearance at the end of the chapter Uh, We've seen, haven't we, that the threat of desertion is a very real one. And Paul tells us that this is why he's uh, writing. Verse 15, he says that everyone in the province of Asia has already deserted me, including uh, Phygelus and Hermogenes. Uh, Paul is not being melodramatic. He's telling Timothy to persevere because he knows that other people are not persevering. And yet he gives us this great example of this one man who hasn't given in. Onesiphorus. And he hasn't given him because uh, he didn't, uh, when he uh, heard that Paul was in prison, he went out to find him. And he's kept visiting him, even though uh, he's been in prison. I think that takes some perseverance, doesn't it? To go looking for somebody. You don't know where they are. There are probably hundreds of prisons in ancient Rome. It would have been very difficult. There weren't records of where they were. He would have probably gone round, taken him weeks to run, keep going round, knocking on the door, asking the jailer, have you got a guy called Paul here? He looks a bit like this. Have you seen him? No, sorry, sir. On he goes. Kept doing it, kept doing it. And when he found him, Paul says, uh, he refreshed me uh, and was not ashamed of my chains. He came into this dirty, uh, damp prison where disease was probably uh, rife and cared for Paul. Onesiphorus persevered in the gospel. He bore its cost, even the cost of suffering with Paul, with Christ. Uh, I guess, uh, like me, you'll probably have enjoyed watching GB's uh, success at the Olympics over the uh, last uh, month or so. Uh, It's very easy, I think, isn't it, to forget that when we watch uh, what we see on TV, that really that's just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? Uh, There will have been uh, years and months and days of training that has gone before to uh, to get to that that goal. Uh, There are no pains without gains. And it seems to me that just as athletes need to show perseverance in order to win the prize, to be faithful. So Paul here is reminding us that Christians, and particularly those who are called to Christian leadership, need to be people who persevere as well. 
It isn't going to be easy. Paul knows that. But we do it in the strength that God supplies. And we do it in the knowledge that the outcome is secure. The one who calls us is faithful, and he will do it. It seems to me that there can be little doubt that the clouds are darkening for the church in the West. Uh, Arguably, we're facing, I think, as big a challenge as the church has faced at any time in its history since the Apostles. And now as then, the church needs gospel-hearted leaders who will stand firm for the good news, the authentic good news of Jesus Christ in the power of God. Friends, will we guard the gospel? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the example of Paul. We thank you for your example, and we thank you for the example of Onesiphorus. And we do thank you for the hard words that you have written here for us. They are hard words because we don't want to suffer. We don't want to uh, be those who have to suffer for your name. And yet we pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit, by the power that's working in us to persevere, to trust you and to hold tight to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the promise of life that we've believed, the promise of life uh, that is life for those who believe it. And we pray that you'd uh, help us uh, for your name's sake and for your glory. Amen.